0: Take your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 2. That's where we are today. Today we conclude our series Christmas Dreams in Matthew chapter 2. Here's the key concept today. Walk by faith, a God will lead you. Walk by faith. Matthew chapter 2. And as you're finding Matthew 2, it strikes me that we all have favorite Christmas stories about how blessings come from unexpected places and unexpected ways. Maybe it's Scrooge, who is visited by ghosts of all things, and through those visitations, he comes out of his selfishness and lives a generously joyful life. Or maybe one of your favorite stories is Rudolph, who goes from outcast among the reindeer to hero on a foggy Christmas Eve. There's a true story that comes from Claymont, Delaware, in 2018. It actually started way back in 1993, and a newspaper photographer was having a slow news day, and he noticed a wild fir tree pushing its way through a crack in the pavement on the side of one of the roads there. And someone had come along and decorated this scraggly little tree just like kind of Charlie Brown's Christmas tree. Can you picture that? Somebody decorated the tree just like that. And, and this little shrub, now he took a picture of that little shrub, and he put it in the newspaper, and they titled it the Christmas Weed. Well, that would have been that, Christmas weed, a little bit of a, you know, underdog in a sense making its way through the pavement and so forth. That would have been that except for the fact that the Delaware Department of Transportation decided that that tiny little fir tree decorated on the side of the road was a hazard and it needed to be removed. Well, word got out along that portion of Delaware there and there was an outcry that people needed to protect the Christmas weed. Now, eventually, that it was removed from the pavement there. But over the years, every year, a new tree appears at that spot. In fact, a fable has been written, a short little, a short little booklet that's sold in the local stores called The History of the Christmas Weed. And as a matter of a fact, they have a festival in honor of the Christmas weed every year in this portion of Delaware. So the organizer of the festival says this, about it. He says, this little tree represents Claymont. We are not pretty, but we are plucky, and we are resilient, and we keep coming back just like this tree. The Christmas underdog wins again. And I say that because we've been following the, the, the travels of Mary and Joseph and little Jesus. And Mary and Joseph in the Christmas story certainly look like underdogs, don't they? But they triumph as they follow God. And here we're looking at the dreams uh, that Matthew records in his telling of the story. Matthew's the only one who focuses really in on these dreams, this series of dreams. There's five of them all together. Four of them uh, are dreamed by Joseph and then one by the Magi. The first dream of Joseph, an angel appeared to him and told him that he should go ahead and wed Mary, and the child within her was the Savior. The second dream of Joseph warned him to not stay where they were, which was Bethlehem, and, and rather travel to Egypt to escape the danger that was found in King Herod and his murderous plots. Today, we're considering the last two dream reports that Matthew tells us about dreams of Joseph, and the first one comes to him while they're still living in Egypt. So let's follow along. Verse 19 is where we start. Uh, You follow as I, I read, it says this. After Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. For those who were trying to take the child's life are dead. So he got up, took the child and his mother, and went to the land of Israel." As I said, Joseph dreams that dream while the family is living in Egypt. We don't know how long the family lived in Egypt, but we don't have to think about really a very long period of time. But in Egypt, as we mentioned last week, there was a sizable population of Jews. And for the duration whatever the duration was that they lived in Egypt it's possible that they stayed with relatives or stayed with friends but while they're there remarkable developments happen back home in Israel Herod the great the hateful tyrant who's been on the throne for 33 years he's di- he has died and when he dies his kingdom is divided in three parts, and, and Rome allows his sons, the remaining sons who are alive, he's killed some of them, but the remaining sons are able to rule in his place. But they have to divide the kingdom, and so it's divided up in three. In the far north, his son Philip rules from 4 B.C., which is the year that Herod the Great dies, all the way to 34 A.D., And the portions of the land that he rules are what we would call today southern Syria, very most northern section of of Galilee, the Golan Heights and that area there. And what's notable about Philip's rule is that Philip actually ruled over quite a few Gentile cities. And so he he oversaw those cities, and one of those cities he remade while he was ruling, and that was a city who was dedicated to the worship of the god Pan, the Greek god Pan. It's It's part of the Greek pantheon of gods. Pan is the god who has a human head, a human torso, and legs of a goat and he took the city that was dedicated to that uh, pagan god, he remade it uh, to be a city filled with temples of all kinds of pagan gods, and he renamed it Caesarea Philippi. And that northernmost city, very influenced by the Gentiles, is where Jesus takes his disciples and in Matthew chapter 16 asks them the question as they walk along this row of impressive pagan temples, that people are using to worship these false gods. And Jesus turns to the disciples and say, who do you say that I am? That takes place in Caesarea Philippi in the North Philip's section. Now, another son, Antipas, also the great, Herod the Great's son, ruled over the majority of Galilee, and he ruled till, to A.D. 39. And so Herod Antipas is the Herod that Jesus refers to most often in, in the Gospels as he mentions Herod. It's Antipas because Antipas is uh, the Herod of the area where Jesus does most of his ministry. And then in the south, around Jerusalem and Bethlehem, in the capital area, there was a third son named Archelius. Now, contrasted with his brothers, who had, a, had long and fruitful rule, Archelius ruled for less than 10 years. Like I said, he ruled the capital area. But he was a man who was so cruel and so bloodthirsty... So prideful and so egotistic that in a short time, he had alienated everyone around him, so much so that the Jews and the Samaritans banded together and went to Rome to plead that he be removed from office. Now, think about it. How bad do you have to be that the Samaritans and the Jews can finally agree that you're the problem? They went all the way to Rome, and they asked for him to be deposed, and in 6 AD, AD 6, he was deposed, and he was banished. But from there on, Rome made a decision. They said, we're not going to put a Jew in charge of the capital area anymore. Rather, we will directly rule that area, and we'll station a Roman governor there to govern that most significant of locations, particularly Jerusalem. And the the governor that you know about was the fifth one, Pontius Pilate. So they changed the way that they ruled this area. Now Joseph is told in a dream that he's not… The dream undoubtedly doesn't explain all these details, but he's told the main headline, Herod is dead, and it's safe to return to Israel once again. And we see here that the initial intention of mary and joseph as they begin to go back to israel the initial intention was that they would return to bethlehem because again we don't have to think that they were in egypt really long time and i think they have the idea as they're heading back to israel heading back to bethlehem well, well maybe that small house is still vacant and maybe we can start up the shop again, and maybe we can get the business going, and, and uh, we can start our life over again. They weren't in Egypt for a long time, but however long it was, God had protected them. God had guided them. And so in verse 21, we see that when that dream comes, they get right to it. Verse 21, so he got up, took the child and his mother, and went to the land of Israel. Once again, we see in Joseph this immediate obedience, just immediately saying yes to God's directions. One author says this, Delayed obedience is disobedience. I think Joseph would have agreed with that. Delayed obedience is disobedience. There's no hesitation. There's no complaint. There's nothing like, what, move again, really? relocate again, it is clear to Joseph that these angelic dreams that he's having are directed by God, and they are accurate, and they're helpful, and by them they are being protected, so it is not questioned at all when another dream comes and he's told to return to Israel. And so they head off, and they head off to Bethlehem with the intention of picking up their life where they left off, but along the way, Joseph has a second dream. Matthew chapter 2, verse 22. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Having been warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, and he went and lived in a town called Nazareth. So was fulfilled what was said through the prophets, he will be called a Nazarene. One historian writes about Archelius and he describes him this way He shared all of his father's negative qualities while lacking his abilities. In other words, Archelius was a thug. And when your king is a thug, you're in trouble. And that's exactly what it was like living in the capital area. We know that this is, uh, is pre-A.D. 6 because Archelaus has not yet been disp- d- d- deposed. And so the family is moving back and hearing that Archelius, the thug, was on the throne. Joseph knew about that reputation, but he didn't take matters into his own hands. But once again, he is specifically directed in a dream to change course. And he changes course. In this final and fourth dream, Joseph is redirected now back to Nazareth where he and Mary had lived previously. That was where they got engaged. It was probably where they were married. And by now, maybe you could understand if Joseph is saying under his breath yet again, why couldn't you simply just tell me all about this at once? But rather, day by day, dream by dream, step by step, But it it strikes me that that's very important for us to notice here, because day by day, step by step, is how God guides us as well, It's how God expects, expects us to follow as well. God will rarely show you all the steps that you need to walk in in order to walk in His will, but He will show you the next step. And we've touched on this before, but it's so prominent in Joseph's story here. He will show you the next step. The test is this. Will you take that next step without insisting that you see all the steps? Without insisting that you see the entire journey? Or, on the other hand, are we going to say, no, I need to see the whole map. I need to see the whole thing spread out before me. I want to know where I'm going. I want to be able to, to make plans, even alternate plans, if I don't like the will of God that you're showing me too much. See, that's the opposite of walking by faith. In 2 Corinthians 5, Paul writes, we live by faith, not by sight. That means we take the step as the step is unfolded before us. That was Joseph's test as well. Are you going to take the next step? Or are you going to let yourself be redirected? Even though you thought you had a plan and it sounded like a good plan, will you allow yourself to be directed specifically by God. That's the test and Joseph passes in flying colors and he is our example of that faithful following. But then Matthew adds an interesting note. He says in verse 23, and he went and lived in a town called Nazareth and so was fulfilled what said through the prophets, he will be called a Nazarene, speaking about Jesus, speaking about the Messiah. Now it was natural that they go to that town They lived there prior. But Matthew says, more than just being a natural place for them to head, it is the fulfillment of prophecy that they go there. Now, the issue is this. We know of no such prophecy. There's no word in the Scriptures that says, He shall be called a Nazarene. There's no Old Testament or Hebrew Scriptures prophet who speaks those words that we know of or writes those words down. And if it were a well-known prophecy... That Jesus, the Messiah, would come out of Nazareth. Don't you think Nathanael's reaction would be different when Philip comes to him, you know, 20-some-odd years later and says, hey, we've found the Messiah, and he comes from Nazareth? John 1, 46, Nathanael responds, Nazareth? Can anything good come from there? Nathanael asked. come and see, says Philip. In other words, there was no expectation on Nathanael's part that Nazareth was the place. In fact, if the prophecy had been clear, and if the prophecy had been well-known, well-spread, you'd think that his response would have been, finally, we've been waiting and watching Nazareth all these years. But the prophecy is not well-known. The prophecy is not well-spread. And here's something. It reminds us that the Bible doesn't tell us everything about everything. Everything. But it tells us what we need as God has revealed it to us. Now, there are prophecies, however, that get the Messiah to Galilee. In other words, that speak about the Messiah being active and coming from Galilee. And specifically, it's Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 9 says this. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who are in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the Gentiles. By the way of the sea along the Jordan, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. It's called Galilee of the Gentiles because remember, in that upper area of Galilee were Gentile cities. They're referred to in the New Testament as the Decapolis. There's ten of them, ten small cities. Now that prophecy puts the Messiah as active in Galilee, in that northern region, but it does not say that He will reside in Nazareth. So where does this quote come from that Matthew says? It's probably an oral tradition that had been known by Matthew and and others, no doubt, that has been passed down generation to generation. It's not found in the Bible, but it is accurate. Again, God doesn't tell us everything about everything. And Matthew knew about that tradition. In verse 23, note, he doesn't say it's written in the prophets, he says it's said. So it's an oral thing that has been passed down to him, and he remembers that, 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 I, that I, I was told that the Messiah would come from Nazareth, and now the family is directed there. And as the family is directed there, not only is he, are they fulfilling that oral tradition that comes down generation to generation, God is also protecting them in some profound ways. The first thing is he's taking care of them relationally. Because this is where Mary and Joseph lived prior to their Christmas journey to Bethlehem. This is where Mary was told by the angel that you're going to have a miraculous conception and the Messiah will come. Joseph was told to take Mary as his wife. They had friends there in, in Nazareth. They had family there in Nazareth. They were married there. So it must have felt like a good idea to go back to Nazareth and rekindle some of those relationships. Sounds like a plan, right? Now, some of those relationships probably, you know, were a little judgy. Probably they counted the months. When did you guys get married? How old is this kid? You know, but after a while, they counted on the fact that that would die out, and it does over time. And somewhere along the line, they have these relationships reestablished, and God is taking care of them. God is also taking care of them financially financially. Because during this period of time, one of those Gentile cities named Sephorus burns. And they need to rebuild the city. And they draw the local tradesmen who, to, to do that work from Nazareth. There, it's very close by. And so Joseph, unknowingly at this point probably, is going to a place where he as a craftsman will have plenty of work. And the family will be well provided for. But also God is taking care of them spiritually because Nazareth was a typical traditional Jewish town. It was a country town. It was kind of off the beaten path. But the important thing is Nazareth was not much influenced by the then modern Greek and Roman ideas. You see, Herod wanted to be a good Roman. And Herod wanted his subjects to be good Romans. And he worked very hard to Romanize Jerusalem. He built a a theater, a Roman theater. He had a racetrack built. He had Roman baths built and gymnasiums built. The kinds of things that Romans built in their big cities. But Nazareth was insulated from all of that. It was a very traditional, very slow-paced life where the center of life was synagogue and Torah. That would be the rhythm. That would be the system of this family. And that would shape the life of this family. And God is protecting them spiritually. And so as we see the hand of God doing these things, we ask ourselves, well, what are the lessons that we learn from this dream sequence and dream story? Number one... Do not depend on the false hope of self-reliance. Be God-reliant. That's what the family is, God-reliant. The voices of self-reliance are all around us today. They're seductive all around us. They say, nobody knows you better than you. You do you, right? You can't be schooled by anyone else. Don't let them tell you what to do. You're on your own. These voices are deceptive and destructive, but they're attractive because we like to think that we don't need anybody telling us anything. We don't need guidance, or we don't need to be dependent. But the gospel story comes along, and you know what it tells me? It tells me I need to be humbled. It tells me that I am hopeless and in in an impossible mess unless I have divine intervention in my life. I need to be God-reliant. Joseph and Mary are examples of God-reliant people who don't, don't follow self-reliant. If they, if they were self-reliant, they would be their destruction here. They cannot be what they're supposed to be depending on themselves alone. And neither can you. No one is designed to navigate this life without God. Be God-reliant. And, re- and remember that God is a God of tender, guiding grace. As he guides us, he wants us to listen and follow because he knows that this direction is going to be best. Trust him for it. Secondly, go back to that phrase, delayed obedience is disobedience. I'm struck by Joseph's example. He did exactly what he was told. Were there questions that came to his mind? There must have been. These are real people with real intellect with real concerns there must have been conversations between him and mandy uh, mary that sounded something like you mean we need to leave now the middle of the night and are you sure he said egypt and how do we know it's safe to go back now why do you think antipas is any better than archaelius they're both herod's son they both have that dna maybe there are discussions like that but even with these sorts of natural questions Immediate obedience is what you see. They're not deterred. Delay is another way of simply disobeying. It's an action that says, well, I'm going to pause for a moment, maybe a better idea, maybe a new idea will come along, one that I prefer more than what God is telling me right now. And in that sense, delay is rebellion. We're not smarter than God, and there is no reason to question His direction. Thirdly, realize that God wants to protect you. And sometimes what he has to do to do that is to protect you from yourself. See, Joseph's natural inclination was to head back to Bethlehem, but that would have been wrong. God protected them and guided them, and he was willing to be redirected by God. Let God redirect you. I'm reminded of a story about the poet William Cooper. Many of his poems have been turned into hymns over the years. He was a Christian man. He lived in the 1700s. But he struggled his whole life with anxiety and depression, so much so that regularly he had to battle against his own feeling of needing to, to end his life. Many times over the course of his life, he felt suicidal. But one time in particular he acted on it. He decided to commit suicide by throwing himself in the Thames River in London. This is in the 1700s. And so he hailed a cab, which at that time was a horse and buggy, hansom cab. And he told the driver to take him to the river. And the driver started out, but a thick f- uh, bed of fog descended over the city. And remember, there were no electric lights back then, and they couldn't find their way through the dim streets of London. And they went on and on, and the driver getting more and more lost. And finally, after some time of travel, the driver said, Sir, I'm gonna have to ask you to leave the cab. I can't see where where I'm going, and I don't wanna be responsible for you. And so, William Cooper got out of the cab, and he looked over, and he was directly in front of his house. They had just been going in circles the whole time, right? And he turned to talk to the cab, and the cab was already gone in the midst of the fog. And he went inside, and as he reflected on all of that, as God has kept him from killing himself, he wrote a poem called, Light Shining Out of Darkness. That poem was adapted in our hymn book as the hymn, His Way. But it's from that poem that we get that famous phrase, God works in mysterious ways, his wonders to perform. That's the line that William Cooper is famous for. God works in mysterious ways, his wonders to perform. Joseph can say that. You can say that. And you can depend on that. God works in mysterious ways. We won't always have it all figured out but he is performing wonders for you. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you that even when we don't see the end from the beginning, we can trust that you do. We thank you that you have a will and a way that you want to guide us. So Lord, we pray that we are faithfully following. Help us to battle against pride. Help us to be surrendered before you. And Lord, we pray that your wonderful love will direct our lives. We rejoice in all that we have in you in Jesus name. Amen. The team is